2: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
3: Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ. The gravity that holds everything together.
4: We got it? Yep. Is we're it recording? recording? Yep. Okay, well. Here, numbers going up. here we are. We're recording the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Everybody?
5: This is this is how they work. We record them and then we post them later. Gather? And then you listen to them. So
4: is this yeah. how this works? Yeah, yeah. I thought it's we not were live. live. We're not live. Nope. nope, we're not live. Gather around your speaker, uh-huh. uh, keep your hands on the wheel or on your soap. If you're listening in the shower. Some people listen in the shower.
5: I, uh, I've started to listen to podcasts in the shower because my wife got uh, one of those little, you know, Bluetooth speakers. So it's like the phone is loud enough. I can just plug it into that speaker. I crank it up loud enough I can hear it over the water and the fan and stuff like that. So yeah. I listened to one this morning. It's
4: Which, great. What did you listen to?
5: Uh, I listened to a podcast by uh, Gimlet Media called, what's it called? Oh, Without Fail. Alex Bloomberg interviews founders and such about their failures and their successes. But Great. I find the failures more interesting than the successes.
4: I find the failures kind of triggering and scary since we're, <laughs> we founded Gravity <laughs> Leadership in a church.
5: Right. Yeah, two things that are uh, sometimes feel precarious and may fail at Months any moment. Month to
4: month. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, so speaking of— Things uh, are
5: going well, though. Yeah. We can say that. I mean, okay. you know. But, you know, you always feel, you always feel it, the it's a, precariousness. It
4: is precarious. Today, uh, friends, we have a, a person on the podcast who's written a book that I think I can say is my favorite book I've read in 2019. I know it's only two months down, three months down, mm-hmm. but this book is ridiculously helpful. And
5: you have been raving about it to me. Oh, man,
4: I've been raving about it to, like, pigeons. I mean, I yeah. just can't stop talking about it. Anyway, mm-hmm. our, our friend Dominique... Du Bois Gilliard is here from Chicago. Hi, Dominique.
1: Hey, how you doing? It's great to be on with you all.
4: Thanks. Uh, Dominique, would you give us an introduction, who you are, what you spend your time doing, etc.
1: Yeah, so I currently serve as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which means that at this point, I'm essentially a pastor to pastors, and I help uh, resource, empower, coach, um, pastors to make faithful connections between faith, discipleship, and race on the grounds. Um, and I curate experiential learning opportunities for our denomination and write curriculum that's sent out to resource the body uh, live into a faithful response uh, to Christ in the midst of the racial divide that's captivating our nation. Oh, my goodness. Mm. That's
5: great.
4: I don't know of another denomination that's putting money and resources and time and energy towards those kinds of things. That's something, that's incredible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's not many. (laughs) No, that's incredible. It's encouraging.
4: So Dominic, you've written this book called Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. And honestly, uh, my, my buddy recommended me this book, and I thought, I don't really care. I don't really, I'm not really that interested in prisons, like I don't wake up thinking about them i don't know anybody in my life who's in prison or in jail mm. I, you know uh i just know we had a lot of black criminals out there um so i honestly was like eh, i don't know if i'll read this but oh my goodness blowing my mind tell me how you got interested in the criminal justice system and how justice plays out in in prisons
1: so I really got awakened to this reality in 2006. It was my senior year in undergrad and about 10 miles away from my college campus was this really tragic story where there was a community that was stigmatized for drug trafficking um, and, two, and a couple of officers were patrolling the community, doing stakeouts, I forgot where the epicenter for the trafficking was coming from. Uh, One officer said that he found out where it was and he went to a lawyer and petitioned for something known as a no-knock warrant. Uh, No-knock warrant is a piece of legislation that allows you to invade a premise without having to stop, display your warrant, or announce your presence as an officer before going in. Um, So he got the piece of legislation and him and two other officers came back to the house uh, two nights later and performed something known as a dramatic entry raid at 3 a.m., where you come in, or SWAT team comes in with full military-grade weaponry and cavalier have have helmets to um, protect them. And they kicked in the door. Uh, the home was owned by a 92-year-old grandmother <laughs> who lived by herself. Um, she heard the commotion, thought someone was breaking into her house. She started to flee for protection. They say that they, they thought she was fleeing to flee the scene. They ultimately deployed 38 bullets and fatally struck her five times in her living room. Um, After killing her in cold blood, they searched the entire house and there was no drugs and no drug paraphernalia. So they start to freak out. How do we legitimate what just transpired? They ultimately craft a narrative and decide to plant drugs throughout her house to make it look like it was a botched drug raid. Uh, the, The case goes to court. They stick to the narrative that they composed in the living room that day uh, all throughout the court proceedings until they find out that they're caught red-handed. And at that point, they confess to the whole thing. They confess to killing her without cause. They confess to planting drugs in her house. And the first officer is found to have fabricated evidence to start with to get the no-knock warrant from the judge. So after all of those confessions, when sentencing comes down, the three officers get sentenced from a range of five to ten years which is a fraction of the time that Katherine Johnston, the 92-year-old grandmother, would have gotten if she actually would have been caught up in drug trafficking. So at that point, I knew uh, that I had uh, ethical and moral responsibility to go advocate for legislative change so that vulnerable people like Catherine Johnston didn't continue to be susceptible to this type of corruption. But the real kicker for me in regards to the book was that my... Um, Like I said, my campus was 10 miles away from where this happened, and my professors were saying, as uh, concerned citizens, we had to stand up and use our political voice to advocate for change. But my church was 15 miles away from where this happened, and they had absolutely nothing to say about what was going on. Mm. I said, as a Christian, if anything should be compelling me to stand up for the least of these and uh, the poor amongst us, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ and not just my academic.
4: Yeah, so mm. when, the, when the secular university cares about the least of these better than the church, something may be amiss. Mm. What, <laughs> yeah. is, is what you're saying, Dominique. And so you exactly. instead, instead of leaving the church or uh, becoming you know just a secular uh, professor, uh, you decided that your conviction wasn't condemnation of the church, but it was a calling into a particular expression of Christ's authority in the church.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think it's so it can be so easy to just walk away, but I think oftentimes God is turning the question back on us, how are you going to be a part of inspiring the change that you know needs to happen? Yeah. Um and why why do we feel so why are we so prone to just put it off on other people like the church isn't doing this or we are doing this and we just walk away? We are the church. So Mm -hmm. whenever we see these gaps, we have the chance actually really discern through the power of the Holy Spirit how God might uniquely be calling us to fill those gaps.
4: Yeah. So speaking maybe in general about what you've observed your last uh, 12 years of, of sort of engaging in this, or maybe even reflecting on that church you were in without throwing any individuals, you know, under the bus. Um what is it about the, the Christianity we've inherited, the lenses and frames that we have, the way that our spirituality takes shape in maybe just America, that's where we are, that, that makes our conscience or, or doesn't allow our heart to be pricked and broken for those injustices, but we get hyper-focused on other injustices. So, so what is it that keeps us complicit or unmoving when these things happen?
1: Yeah, I think we have really bought into uh, a theology or a worldview of meritocracy um, mm. where we really do believe that people get what they deserve. Um, and we have very little sympathy or empathy for people who are behind bars because if they would have just done the right thing like I did, then they would never be in that situation. And, you know, what's the hardest thing to swallow about that, while logical in some ways, if anybody should understand the fallacy of meritocracy, it should be Christians. Come on, uh, Dominic. You yeah. know, that ultimately, if we all got what we deserve, we'd be forever destined for separation from God. Mm. But it was Jesus who, while we were yet sinners, it doesn't say while we, once we cleaned our act up, um, it says while we were still enemies of God, Mm. Jesus sacrificed uh, and gave his life on our behalf. So I say that that same grace that was first extended to us, that uh, has adopted us, that is our identity, should also inform our response to other people who currently stand in the need of grace today.
5: Yeah. So it's almost like we've been more affected by this myth of meritocracy, this story, this narrative, right? And and so we just knee jerk when we see someone in prison or we see a 92-year-old grandma, you know, I mean that's an awful story. But like when we when we see some of these things happen, we knee jerk into, well, I wonder, you know, why were they hanging out at that corner? Or I wonder what they said to the officer? Or you know, we yeah. immediately jump to these merit- meritocratic narratives rather than being immersed in this other narrative, which is the narrative uh, that Jesus shows us on the cross, which which would cause us to jump to different sort of immediate thoughts, right? Um, yeah. It's fascinating.
1: And I'd say the other piece of it for evangelicals in particular is that um, our theology of sin isn't robust enough. Mm. Um, I think we... we fundamentally believe in individual sin but we have not really adequately grappled with systemic sin yeah yeah so
4: let me let me let me jump in because i think this is so important dominique yeah and immediately some people when they hear that they get triggered and they shut down and they stop listening right because they they relegate what you're describing as a partisan position, mm. or as a, uh, you're introducing Marxist theo- uh, philosophy into Christian theology. I don't know if you've heard this critique, but this is flying I've never around. heard that one. That's uh, kind of amazing. Right, this is, Marx, this is Marxist, right? Mm. Um, you're, and so, yeah. what you're saying, though, is, I mean, part of my story in the last 20 years is, is realizing uh, not just the com- uh, systemic and structural sin that doesn't impact me, but the systemic and structural sin that does, and that I'm complicit in, mm. and it's wrecked to yeah. me. I mean, I'm wrecked. I don't know. I, you know what I'm saying? Why? Why do we lack? And I say we, I mean, like white evangelicals. Why do we lack the conceptual tools to see what is so obvious? Uh, what you're saying is so obvious to you. Why do we lack the ability to see that?
1: So I think a big part of it is is that today. A lot of our churches have become so New Testament centric that they forsake the Old Testament. Hmm. And I think you see institutional justice most overtly explained from a biblical perspective in the Old Testament. So a perfect Hmm. example. Look at the story of Exodus, uh, particularly uh, Exodus. I think it's uh, chapter one, verse six through 210. It's the whole story of Moses being born. And uh, ultimately, how Pharaoh, uh, because the text says, because he feared that the Egyptian, I mean, that the Hebrews would become too numerous and flee and join someone else, he enacts this whole line of injustice. Yeah. Um, he enslaves them. He intensifies the labor against them, and then he gets to the point that he ultimately enacts an infant side and says that all Hebrew boys must be killed because, again, of the fear. And we have not really adequately connected fear to fear-mongering that ultimately persuades people, the masses, to turn a blind eye to the institutional injustice that's been acted, And how that one person's sin, the Pharaoh's sin, becomes institutionalized because of Pharaoh's position of power. So his individual sin is able to create a law that all of the citizens of the land must Mm -hmm. follow. And I think because we have not, adequately looked at how oftentimes throughout scripture is telling us how individual sin, when indefallible people like you and me are given positions of power, the sinfulness in our lives ultimately trickles out into the institutions that we're tasked with stewarding. And yeah. so I think, mean, I think it's very much in line with our belief of individual sin. I think we just have yeah. made the next step to understand yeah. how that logically flows right. out into things that we've been tasked with. Yeah,
5: so the next Pharaoh, to use your example, the next Pharaoh may not have been as fearful of a Pharaoh, perhaps, you know, maybe he was more righteous individually, but there's still this law of the land that's now embedded Mm -hmm. into the culture that who knows if you're going to change that or not, because maybe you told yourself a story about why those Hebrews were enslaved in the first place, right? And it didn't have anything to do with Pharaoh's fear, it probably had to do with, you know, something that was their own fault. And so yeah. That, that's, yeah, that, I think that's a great example of just how sin can live in systems, it can live in policies, it can live in culture, not just inside of individual people.
4: Yeah, so individual sin uh, with corporate power equals institutional or systemic yeah. uh, evil, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so then, let's play this out, uh, Dominic, because you know then the next... And you talk about this in your book, about how uh, people saw prisons um, as places of punishment that were yep. meant to extract the debt that people owed society. Mm. But, but the, the, common, um, the common response to this is, yes, you know Pharaoh did all these evil things, and the answer isn't to change the laws. The answer is to change Pharaoh's fill-in-the-blank heart. Mm-hmm. Change his heart. You change Pharaoh's heart, right? All this will take care of itself. Right. Help us understand, Dominique, why that is insufficient.
1: Yeah, so if you have, if you change Pharaoh's heart, if Pharaoh is someone who has the integrity to go back and then acknowledge the ways in which sin distorted his vision to start with and say that as an act of repentance and turning away from that sin, I'm going to actually rewrite the law then that would be one thing. (laughs) Um, But that's not generally what we mean when we talk about changing Pharaoh's heart. We're talking about uh, reducing Pharaoh back down to the individual without acknowledging the way that his power institutionally has ramifications for all people and uh, communities. And so I think it's inadequate to just talk about a heart change Uh, Like, okay, example, uh, in regards to the book. So think about Zacchaeus. I talk about the story of Zacchaeus in the book. And Zacchaeus, when he repents, he has to have a John Baptist type of repentance where there is fruit in his repentance. Mm -hmm. It's not just the actual changing of the heart, but something tangibly must be different in how he engages in his vocation in light of his repentance, in light of his turning away from sin and returning yeah. And in returning back to God, He has a recalibrated vision of of community, and He understands the way in which His sin has violated entire communities. Yeah. And He doesn't say that I'm just going to bring uh, reparations to the people who I harmed, but I understand that my my sin has had ripple effects and generational impacts. So I'm going to actually give back more than what I directly uh, distorted.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and and so I think to understand. Uh, changing people's hearts without connecting that to an ethical response of actually living into our repentance so that there is fruit in our repentance, the way that John the Baptist says, then we will always have this insufficient uh mm-hmm. Way of thinking about repentance that actually allows us to be change agents in the world, partnering yeah. with God's work of restora- restoration. And I think what's really critical about restoration is when we think about uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world, we think about God in Christ as reconciling fallible individuals, but it says mm. the world, which yeah. means fallible systems and structures. Yeah, to John,
4: to John it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The world is a the world is a logic by which everything works. Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. system. Yeah.
5: Yeah, and a lot of times those laws, right? That that you know, it, a lot of times the the people who created the unjust systems are dead anyway, right? Yeah. So it's like their their hearts can't like be like they can't go back and repay because they've they've created systems that, and so yeah, so it, it makes sense to me that the systems themselves would need to be changed as an act of repentance, right? As an act of you know. Restoration, right? Yeah, right. Um, a big part of your your book, Dominique, um, talks about the difference between uh, justice. Our thinking about justice as retribution versus our thinking about justice as restoration, and you've mentioned this a little bit with the prison system. Uh, and the way that we think about what prisons are for and what happens uh, in those prisons. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two things and why that's such an important thing for us to think more Christianly about?
1: Yeah, I think uh, most people think about justice as what's punishment, Um, and Mm. justice really equates to punishment. but. Punishment without any tangible plan for one, accountability, but two, uh, healthy reintegration is just vengeance. And so how do we understand that God's justice is inherently restorative in nature? Um, And it's not about just dishing out punishments, but it's about creating space for us to be held accountable for the wrong that we've committed and in community, walking through the process of rehabilitation so that after we've been rehabilitated, we can actually reintegrate, be reintegrated into society in healthy, full, functional ways that allows for the shalom and flourishing that God intends for all people and all communities. And so without that second piece, um, it's just vengeance. It's not yeah. about uh, accountability in a biblical sense. And I think one of the biggest things that I was really trying to do in the book is to try to help us that take a more biblical response to these conversations and our engagement. Um, because the scriptures actually give us a blueprint for how we engage these things and how we how we live distinctively Christ-like in mm-hmm. the midst of a world that proclaims to be an ambassador of justice worldwide, that yeah. is actually um, forsaking its responsibility to men and women who are behind bars, who are supposed to be rehabilitated we're not giving them the tools or the resources mm-hmm. or the investment to truly pursue the rehabilitation process so they can come back and play society in healthy hallways so, uh, them to help make our communities better safer places mm-hmm.
4: yeah so so uh, retributive justice isn't just
1: no. <laughs> is what? Yeah, right. It's not yeah. just. Yeah, yeah. It's not just.
4: Yeah. yeah, it is a pound of flesh. It is punishment. It is you. You vengeance you, is you, a you just great write word for it. It is vengeance. But I'm noticing, and you t- you talk about this in the second half of your book,
1: like we love vengeance. Yeah, like we're in love <laughs> with vengeance. Yeah,
4: you know, yeah. to it the speaks point to where the
1: fleshly nature it speaks mm-hmm. to the fleshly nature, and so there is a piece of us that craves vengeance. Um, but when we look at uh, patterning our lives after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus provides a different response in situations where vengeance could actually be satisfied. I mean, one of my mm-hmm. per- favorite stories is from the book is the story of the woman caught in adultery, yeah. uh, where the law actually requires bloodshed. Jesus comes in and instills grace. And he says, let the person without sin pass the first stone, yeah. because the biblical truth is that there is only one just judge. And whenever we put ourselves in the position of being the just judge, we ourselves start to fall into sin because we believe that we are capable of making impartial decisions that are actually uh, rooted in uh, a truth that we aren't capable of as Mm. fallible individuals. And so I think we, we need to be very intentional about recognizing the difference between the just judge and the institutional judges that we endow with power within our criminal justice system and the ways in which our blind support of a criminal justice system that really has a very, very, very murky history um, can make Mm -hmm. us complicit in the punitiveness that we're trying to deconstruct. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. The history that you just, that you walk through about how the prison systems have actually changed from a place of, you know, in, in, even in scripture, right, there's, um, uh, we, we like, practice true religion, like, visit visit prisoners, you know, and the people yeah, in prison yeah. in, in, in New Testament times, and even up to, like, three or four hundred years ago, were, were sort of, like, impoverished people, or displaced yeah. people, um, yeah. and, 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 you know, criminals were put, you described, cr- criminals were put in stocks, you know, in yep. New England, or g- given hard labor, you know, or, or even just killed, <laughs> or no. thrown in the river with a stone to see if they're a witch. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> cr- criminals were treated like that. But then, but then uh, y- you describe like right around the War of eighteen twelve that. Uh, which, by the way, I kept thinking like all these people coming back with PTSD uh, are being thrown in prison. Right? <laughs> like we don't yeah. know what to do yeah. with it. But right around there, there's a shift from sort of uh, prisons are these holding places for um the people on the margins of society to prisons are places where we exact punishment for breaking laws um yeah. yeah can you can you and it's fascinating and then we actually theologically justified that can you can you just talk about that a little bit
1: yeah and i think a lot of this really comes from the belief you know god is holy and therefore set apart from sin And so we start to see ourselves as holy and therefore should be set apart from sinners. And so prisons become this place where we quarantine the sinfulness of our society and we separate us from them. And then whenever we create this sliding scale of uh, us and them, the things that are okay to do to them would never be okay to do for us, And we, we morally legitimate that through meritocracy. Yep. Because it's only okay to do that to them because they weren't ethical enough to follow the rules, follow the law like I was. So they did this to themselves. And ultimately, the punishment is done to help them understand the depth of the depravity that they have and therefore their need for a savior. And so ultimately, it is through suffering, through brokenness, through bringing a criminal to their lowest point that they will understand the full depth of their depravity and their urgent need for a savior. And so it creates this kind of us-and-them category that allows us to continue to do this and do it in a way in which we think that we're bearing witness to the gospel. Yeah. And we're actually bringing lost souls, lost sheep back to their shepherd through punishment, through this kind of us-and-them mentality. And so I think that's the really... The really dangerous piece of it because meritocracy slowly but surely allows us to think ourselves as more holy than we truly are yes and it allows us to have this space of moral superiority where we're always looking down upon and making Mm -hmm. judgments on behalf of other valuable people just like you and i are Um,
5: yeah and we go we kind of write the story backwards right where we're like well apparently I've done something right because I'm not in prison and apparently they yep. did something wrong. Cause they are like, we, we just yep. write it backwards without oftentimes without much evidence. We're just sort of like, well, they must've done something. Yeah. You know?
4: And what's, what's fascinating to me is how you then trace in your book, you trace how once we, once we decided that prisons were the place to scapegoat them, our laws began to support our need to do that. Yeah. Right. right. So the war on drugs and the school to prison pipeline and all these, uh, racially unjust laws, right? Where sentences for a 92-year-old grandma are ridiculously high, but for the cops who lie about her death, ridiculously low. Mm -hmm. Like, our laws then don't come out of this, you know, they weren't delivered on stone tablets to George Washington. Right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But they come out of this uh, misconception of
1: justice, Mm
4: -hmm. and they further Mm -hmm. perpetuate the injustice. Yeah? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and they're buttressed by American mythology, yes, uh, the yeah, mythology yeah. That, that makes us believe we are what we are through hard work, rugged individualism, people pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, but ignores the systemic injustice that has mm-hmm. really made the nation wealthy in the ways that it has. So one of the things I talk about is that there's this fallacy around mass incarceration that it really starts in 1971 with the war on drugs. Well, the reality is that mass incarceration historically really emerges right at the end of Reconstruction
0: Mm. when
1: you have... Because this nation, we're taught that we abolished slavery in 1865, but the reality is that slavery is still legally permissible in our nation because of the loophole that exists in the 13th Amendment, which says slavery in our nation is illegal except as a punishment for a crime. You know, there's so
4: many people that don't know that. I mean, the 13th Amendment makes enslaving criminals
1: legal. Yes. Exactly. One hundred percent. And that's why prisons have become such big business. It's lucrative. Um Mm -hmm. and the reason I mean we are addicted to incarceration. And that the real irony is the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our nation are there because they are addicted to substance or they have some kind of mental health impairment. And oftentimes they can't get the the proper medication to deal with their impairment. And so, uh, but we are addicted to incarceration. And because of this, we've created loopholes and systems that allow us to exploit the loophole in the 13th Amendment, like convict leasing. So in 1877, uh, when Reconstruction ended, Civic leasing emerges as a system where people who are criminalized can then be exploited for their labor. They're leased out to corporations, former Mm. plantation owners, doing the exact same slave labor under the exact same dehumanizing circumstances for the exact same no pay. Convict leasing is legal in our nation until 1921, so well after slavery is abolished. Yeah. Um, and we know that it becomes this Southern strategy to resuscitate a deflated Southern economy after the triangular slave trade is abolished. Uh, one of the reasons why we know this is in Alabama alone in 1898, convict leased, uh, 200, by, by the end of convict leasing in Alabama alone, at least 200,000 Black men have been leased to. And then 1898, convict leasing supplies 73% of the state of Alabama annually.
5: Wow.
1: So this is not some small-scale enterprise. Yeah, this yeah. is a large systemic reality yeah. that is intentionally Place throughout the South to resuscitate a deflated economy. And one of the things that people don't realize is when we talk about the criminalization of Black lives right after Reconstruction ends in 1877, when federal troops are taken out of the regions, there are things called vagrancy laws that are applied for Black people throughout the South that literally say if you cannot prove that you're employed, you can be. Yes. Wow. And then there are apprenticeship laws in many states that say that if a child is born to an unfit uh, unfit parent, notice how ambiguous it is, right. or is deemed an orphan, the mm-hmm. girl will be legally endowed to her former slave owner till the age of 18 and boys to the age of 21. And wow. so it just continues to re perpetuate this yeah. kind of unjust racialized system where we see that uh, black bodies in particular are being exploited for their labor in a way that buttress the foundations of what become the most powerful nation the world has ever known economically. And then lastly, I'll just say uh, one of the ways that we uh, see this mythology still playing out today is The U.S. prides itself on being the land of the free. It prides itself on being a democracy where people are innocent until proven guilty. But the reality is that today, 75% of people in jails are there not because they've been convicted of a crime, but because they're too poor to afford their bail. Wow. And so think about this. Because of pretrial detention, 75% of the people who are locked up in U.S. jails today have not been convicted of any crime. That flies in the face of what we say that we're about. We we spend fourteen billion dollars a year locking up people who've not been convicted of crime. That's forty million dollars a day locking up people who've not been convicted of any criminal activity.
4: Yes, and it That's usually amazing. isn't. It usually isn't the rich white guys because they get released on their own recognizance.
5: Yeah, because <laughs> they've got. A, they've Can I got say a, that here? They've got enough money. Yeah, you know.
4: Oh my gosh! So. <sighs>
5: And just just the connection. I mean, there's so much. There's so many layers here, Dominique. But the connection to the connection to slavery and and the southern economy and the, and slavery's connection to the economy um, is a huge part of this. Like I, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm reading a book right now that that connects the, these dots. It's called The Half Has Never Been Told. I don't know if you've ever read that. Oh, yeah, one, it's a great, great book. Edward Baptist. But yeah. but it connects these dots just in such explicit ways that a lot of the justification for slavery just came out of the fact that we were just making so much gall dang money, <laughs> right? By ha- b- because we had free labor and, and industrialization and the, and the cotton uh, industry and all that kind of stuff. It's
4: almost like we can't serve two masters. <laughs>
5: it's you, almost you like scripture say,
1: told us that the love of money is the root of what? Right, oh. right.
5: All kinds of evil. Yeah, it's almost like that. <laughs> But anyway, it it's fascinating to me just that that connection uh, that I never made, you know what I mean, as a as as a white kid. Like I I, I had any uh, any idea growing up. Nope. All these connections nope. um
4: help me out though, Dominic. Help me out, okay? Um, help me. I'm help me. I'm I'm from Indiana. I'm I'm not from evil Alabama, right? I'm 42. I've never owned a slave, right? I'm there's nothing you're describing that I'm personally responsible for. Yeah. And so I'm somewhere between um, confused about how do I respond to something I'm not personally responsible for, or, hear me on this, I may even be offended yeah. that you're telling me that I'm complicit or culpable or need to take some responsibility for this. Uh, let's just say that's me. It's not, Dominic. Yep. That's not not me. (laughs) Let's just say that's me. But
5: let's say somebody's listening. Let's say
4: somebody's listening who is empathetic, has family members like that. Maybe you're like that. Like, what do you say to that person?
1: I would say that right now in our nation, we presently have more jails, prisons, and detention centers in our nation than we do degree granting. So let me say that a different way. There are literally more places in the U.S. where you can get locked up than you can get a college education. Mm. And what people don't realize is how much prison labor is connected to our everyday lives and the commerce that's produced behind bars and how that allows us to actually get the products that we use on an everyday basis from anything from... Uh, uniforms that our children wear for their sporting events, to furniture that's on college campuses, to airplane parts made for Boeing, to uh, stuff that's made for Whole Foods. Um, All of these different things are made behind bars. And people who are behind bars are paid $0.93 to $4 a day for a full day's work. And all of that cost savings that's happening gets transmitted onto me as the consumer because I actually don't have to pay people to actually do the labor to produce the product. So that's one, that's one way I would yeah. respond and yeah. say that this is something that we really need to grapple with. And it's, it's kind of in, in plain view. Like most of us don't realize. No. Um, I think, no. And most of us are implicated also through where we choose to bank. Our banking institutions ultimately finance the expansion of private prisons in which this labor is taking place. And I think another way that I would, uh, and also our hedge funds and our retirement life, yes. um, about where that stuff is, uh, where we're parking our funds and how those funds are ultimately empowering people and oppression. Mm. And so it makes us implicated. And I know that most people don't know to even track this down, and so I'm going to give you a resource uh, later on that actually shows how you can actually look into this and mm. actually divest yourself from institutions that are implicated in oppression. But I think on the top of that, I think we, we live in a reality right now. How this is connected to all of us is because of the way that we've been socialized to link pigmentation and criminality. Yep. Mm. Um... We live in a nation where right now one in three black men are expected to spend time behind bars in their life. The number is one in six for Hispanic males. Uh, black men represent 6.5 percent of the U.S. population, but constitute 40.2 percent of our incarcerated population. Wow. Another community is oftentimes left out of this is Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have one of the most grotesque uh Disparities in our nation and the state of Minnesota. Native American women represent one point three percent of the uh, state's populace, but constitute twenty two percent of the state's incarcerated population. Holy cow! So when when we when we think, particularly as Christians, um, what I want us to see is the way in which we have been seduced into um, making correlations between race and criminality. That are not um, God affirming, um, and they are not reflective of what we claim to believe that every individual is inherently made in the image of God. Yeah. Uh, we slowly but surely participate in the defacing of the image of God in entire communities when we ultimately allow the political rhetoric and the sensationalization of media. Uh, coverage to make us make these improper correlations, because there have been study after study after study that have proven that Black people are no more likely to use or sell drugs than whites. But that's the way that we've been socialized to believe that. So there was a study done by the Journal of Alcohol and Drug Education in 1995, and they asked people to close their eyes for a second and envision a drug user and describe that person to me. 95% of the people surveyed described an African-American person. Wow. And so why this is so important is Romans 12 tells us that we cannot be conformed to the patterns and the logics of this world, but we ultimately have to be transformed Mm. through the renewing of our
2: minds. Mm.
1: Because our minds have not been renewed in how we think about race, we continue to participate in a system that uh, re-perpetuates these kind of racial disparities, and we do so un- we, we're not troubled by the fact that we're doing so because we believe that these racial associations are accurate, mm-hmm. that they're factually rooted. Um, and so I'll give you one quick story um, to, to help you make this correlation. So I was uh, at a presentation Michelle Alexander was giving, um, and I always like to acknowledge that my work comes off of Uh, the foundation that she uplaid. Hmm. Um, But I was at a presentation that Michelle Alexander gave and she said, raise your hand if you've been to college, uh, if you've been to college. Virtually everybody raised their hand. She said, raise your hand if on your college you knew someone who used drugs. Everybody raised their hand. She said, when was the last time you turned on the nightly news and there was a drug raid on a college campus? She said, it's not that we don't know that drugs are on college campuses. It's not that we don't know that drugs are in executive boardrooms. It's not that we don't know that drugs are in suburban communities. It's that we've made a conscious choice about where we're going to wage the war on drugs and where we're not going to wage the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And that is what feeds the media uh, depictions that we consistently see associating Blackness, brownness with criminality and the political rhetoric on both the left and the right. And that's critically important because sometimes we can start thinking that this conversation is a Republican strategy. Mm -hmm. The reality is this is a bipartisan reality where both parties use dehumanizing rhetoric that scapegoat entire people groups and communities. So on the left Black uh, black communities are called super predators on the right. Uh, Hispanics are called animals who are coming from south of the border who are going to rape and pillage our communities. We have to take this seriously and realize that part of the reason why we are in the situation we are is because of uh, the abuse of politicians. Um, And I think about this. um, Lastly, I'll I'll land with this. In 2010, there was a congressional bed mandate uh, written into the law by a Democrat from West Virginia that said on average, ICE must de- detain 34,000 people nightly for immigration offenses. Think about that. A congressional directive on the book since 2010 that says nightly, an average of 34,000 people must be detained for immigration offenses. And that directly connects to private prisons because private prisons are like hotels where every single night there is a vacancy in the prison, there's a cell vacant, they lose money because private prisons are a for-profit industry, yep. right? And so I think we just we just there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I know we don't have time to so adequately do it, but these are some of the core. connections.
4: Dominic, I don't ever want to have somebody different on the podcast. We'll just have you back every week. <laughs> we just keep unpacking. This. <laughs> I mean, we're going to keep unpacking. I, I mean, this is an education, listeners. I uh, the the book is mass incarceration. Rethinking Mass Incarceration. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I, If there's one book you read this year, mm. it not only like a sociological study, a history study of America, and looking at these things, but also deeply, robustly, profoundly theological, mm-hmm. um, it really necessary good bridging of those two worlds, they, mm-hmm. they often don't get bridged. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you do a great job in the book, uh, Dominique. Dominique. What, um, what was the
5: resource you mentioned? Yeah, you, I was going to say, what do we do? What
4: do, what do we, uh, he, he mentioned free stuff. We're going after the free stuff. <laughs> uh, no, like, what do we do? Like, I'm, I'm listening to this, right? I care deeply yeah. about this stuff.
5: Yeah. It, yeah.
4: But honestly, here's the thing. It's like, it's paralyzing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The systems yeah. are
5: so huge. The
4: systems are big. They're so far away. Uh, they They are out of sight, out of mind. I yeah. feel paralyzed. How can I begin to work with God, rather than uh, ignoring how God is at work.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it all starts by getting proximate. Um, How do we get close to the condemned, to the people who would be, we've been socialized to slowly but surely dehumanize? Um, And the closer we get to people, we realize the way in which the world has actually formed We've been conformed to the patterns and the logics of this world. And that's why Matthew 25 is such a critical text. Jesus says that if you're a follower of mine, you are supposed to be present behind prison bars. It doesn't say if you're a liberal progressive. It says (laughs) if you follow me, you're supposed to be present behind prison bars because Jesus knows the critical importance of practice. He knows that you can't hate people when you, I mean, it's harder to hate people once you actually get proximate and get to know them. That's, right. Yep, that's and, right. And all of the the stereotypes that you formed in your mind, they start to fade away when you actually start to establish relationships. Mm. And so um, Matthew 25 is so important. I always tell people, I only have to give this talk because we don't know because we don't know. And mm. if we were faithfully present behind bars, we would know the ways in which the image of God is being placed Daily basis with yeah. so many populations, but it's also rooted in Hebrews thirteen three, which tells us that we are supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we ourselves were incarcerated, suffering alongside. Of them. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine the prophetic witness of the church today if we were remembering incarcerated people as if we ourselves were suffering alongside? Mm-hmm. Them? But um, the the resource is called Walking. Uh, it's you can find it at walkingtowardslove.com. It's a free uh, video based cur- small group curriculum that mm-hmm. walks you through the book. And then after you download the curriculum, um, there's a 20 point platform for advocacy and reform that talks about high level uh, reform that we can pursue for our criminal justice system that makes it more humane, dignifying place for people who have opportunities for true rehabilitation, lasting transformation, healthy mm-hmm. reintegration in our society. Great. It's
5: called walkingtowardlove.com and it walks you through your book. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yep. It walks me through, it walks you through my book. Um, There's interviews with me, video-based interviews with me, and then there's a written component uh, that you can use in your small groups to continue to press into the things.
5: That's great. Yeah. And I I was just reminded, you know, you mentioned the banks uh, funding private prisons. Um, I just saw a news report that the CEOs of Chase – Yep. JP Morgan and Wells Fargo have both said that they are going to divest, uh, or they're no longer going to fund. I can't remember what the term terminology was. So I'm so not
1: sure. Wells Fargo has reduced. Chase has completely said that they're going to... We're going to get out of
5: this. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that was, again, not knowing the details, but that was an encouraging sign to me that like, okay, speaking up, asking questions, raising the issue can make a difference, even at these high level kind of... You know, banking institutions. And what, yeah. and what
1: people don't know is that a critical piece of that was Brian Stevenson actually going and requesting a meeting with executives of Chase and actually telling them how problematic and dehumanizing and implicated in injustice
2: their oh. funding
1: of private prisons were. And so this is a time for the people of God to raise up and use their moral and ethical voice to put pressure on the system to make it a more humane, dignifying system so that our money is not implicated in oppression.
4: Amen. Well, amen. Oh gosh. Dude, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, being thanks on. for having me. I really appreciate it.
4: Thanks for your book. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your witness. And um, friends, we'll put links to Dominique's book and resources in the show notes. Um, is there a way to connect with you? social? Are you on social media at all?
1: Yep. I'm on all the social medias. You can find me on Facebook uh, by searching Dominique DuBois Gilliard. Uh, you can like my author page there. On Instagram, I'm at Dominique D. Gilliard. And on Twitter, I'm D.D. Gilliard.
4: Yep, yeah, Great. Well, um, blessings to you, brother. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciated being on the show.
3: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.